uh, last week, Pastor Jordan Michelski did an excellent job of teaching us about anger and how anger, it not only hurts us, but it also hurts those around us and how Jesus really deepens what it means for us to avoid anger. Um, it's not just about the act of anger, but it's very much about what is happening in our lives. And so for this morning, we are going to continue in our series, The Upside Down Kingdom. And uh, we are going to rewind a tad, if that's okay. And we're going to look at some verses that maybe we've, that we've just skipped over for a week in our exploration of Jesus' sermon. And I feel like these verses that we're going to look at today are going to give us so much insight into what Jesus is about to teach throughout the rest of his sermon. And so we're going to look at them this morning. But before we look at those verses, let me use an illustration that I've heard um, that I think is going to help us and that I think is going to assist with us in our teaching. And so picture a family unit. Let's call them the Smith family. I've given you a visual there, okay? Something kind of, you know, along those lines, right? A uh, family unit with uh, two daughters and a son. And so we'll call them the Smith family. Now, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, they love all three of their teenage children. And they have three teenage children. And so let's start with Megan. Megan is the oldest of the three. And Megan was uh, sitting on the couch, and her dad walked into the living room, and he asked her the question. And he said to her, Megan, will you mow the lawn today? Would you, would you please mow the lawn today? And Megan, here's the invitation, and here's her dad asking her to mow the lawn. And so she gets up, and she says, yes, you know what? I'm so awesome at mowing the lawn. You know, I'm just like a, you know, a lawn master out there. And so she proceeded to wait until her parents, you know, were looking out the window. She, she, she was looking around, making sure that there were some neighbors outside. Maybe some of the neighbors were outside doing their lawn or kind of walking by. She, she definitely wanted people to see her doing this. She wanted to make sure that people could see her. She would only mow if people were around. And so she began mowing the lawn. You know, she was kind of, you know, doing her thing. But she would only mow what was visible and what she could get at. There were some sections of the lawn that were hard to see and that were hard to get at, but she just ignored them because no one necessarily saw them. No one was going to see that, you know, whether that was cut or not. So she just really just mowed what was in view. And she does it just enough for people to see. And, you know, she's definitely the kind of person who's mowing the lawn. You know, she pulls her phone out, you know, she snaps a pic of her, you know, big smile with her lawnmower straight to Instagram, right? Hashtag Grassmaster, right? And M Megan, you know, she skips the tough parts. She, you know, there's gardening that needs to be done. She skips it. The hedges need to be trimmed. She kind of skips that. But she does what she can. And then she goes in and she talks about all that she'd done. Did you see the great job I did with the lawn? Did you see how awesome I am at that? And she tells her dad, you know what? You owe me this much money. And she talks about how much she's owed because of what she's done. Because of the amazing job that she just did, she calculates it to a T. And for Megan, it's all about earning. It's all about calculating. And it's very legalistic for her, even being family. That's Megan. She's one of the Smiths. I tried to choose generic names. So if your last name's Smith, don't worry. I'm not talking about you today, okay? But that's Megan. How many of you grew up like Megan? Anyone? Anyone grow up like Megan? You can relate to that a little bit. Well, let me talk about the son. He's the second oldest. His name's Jimmy. You see, the next week, Mr. S Mr. Smith walked into the living room and saw his, his um, son, Jimmy, sitting there. And he says to him, Jimmy, can you please mow the lawn? They must use fertilizers, what I'm thinking, right? Because, you know, it's just a week later. 
But he asks him to mow the lawn, and Jimmy, without putting down the remote controller for the TV and without making eye contact with his dad, he said, you know what, sure, Dad, whatever. You know, I'll see if I can get to it today. See what the day brings, right? See, see what happens. See how it goes. You see, Jimmy knew his dad needed the lawn mowed, but he also knew, he was a very smart guy, he also knew that grass grew very slow, right? And so, you know, you know, it won't be too bad if I make it out there today, if I make it out there tomorrow. Maybe I can give this a few days. Maybe I'll pray for rain, right? Maybe, maybe that's my best move, and then all of a sudden I won't have to mow the lawn. But he was a smart guy, and he figured, he figured to himself that the TV show he was watching was a bit more important. Plus, he knew that his dad loved him. He knew that his dad accepted him and cared for him, that things were cool, and that his dad would totally, completely understand. He did know that by watching... TV all afternoon and not mowing the lawn that he would get an earful, though, from his sister Megan. He knew that was going to happen. He didn't like how Meg was so vocal about how awesome she is at mowing the lawn. Jimmy thought, you know, I never want to be so self-righteous. I never want to be so legalistic like my sister Megan about these things. He thought, you know what, my parents love me, so no matter what, who cares if I get to the lawn today? I'm going to sit here on the couch and not going to pretend that I like mowing the lawn. You know, I want to be authentic. I want to be real about this. And plus, my dad's going to forgive me, right? How many of us grew up a bit like Jimmy, if we're honest with ourselves? You see, Megan and Jimmy represent two false versions of Christianity. And I'll talk about that more as we go on in our life lesson this morning. They represent two ways that Christians have understood what it means to be good and live as a good person. And in this passage today that we're going to look at, Jesus will confront all our ideas and motivations on what it means to be good. So what does it mean to be good? Is it the Megan kind of life? You know, I, I chose Meg because I was listening to the White Stripes the other day, and I just thought, you know, i got to fit this in here somewhere, right? Is it the Jimmy kind of life? What does a good life look like in God's kingdom? The first thing we need to recognize whenever we're talking about God's kingdom is that it requires of us that we leave the present age to be a part of what we would call God's age. To leave what we know here, to leave the systems that we follow here on earth, to recognize that God has something that is far, far, far greater for us. It's his ways we look to. It's his kingdom. It's a paradigm shift of sorts, and I've talked about that before, how you once saw things this way, and now Jesus is about to bring something that's completely different, and he teaches us to walk the opposite way. What worked before is not necessarily going to work for us now. And so, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17 to 20, and we're going to read it in a second, not only is this a confusing passage, but as author and, and, and theologian N.T. Wright says, it's really a core passage of the Sermon on the Mount. And verse 20 is the hinge of what Jesus was going to be saying in the rest of this chapter. And so if we miss it, we could sometimes in some ways miss it all. And so let's read it. Matthew chapter 5. If you've got your phone or your Bible, you can go there or look to the screens. It'll be on there for you as well. Let's read. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me give you a little background to the audience that Jesus may have been talking to that day. You see, the people present were Jewish, and they had a high respect for the law, the Torah, which is basically the first five books of the Bible. And Jesus opens up his sermon talking about who's blessed, right? We've already been through that. We've been through the Beatitudes. He gives eight different traits, people who are blessed. And then he talks about salt and light and talks about, you know, how— his followers need to be salt and light in the world, that they are salt and light in the world, but he doesn't mention the law necessarily yet. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were people who apparently had their act together. They were the ones, you know, who followed the law, they taught it, they claimed to live it apparently. And so is Jesus saying, as he begins this talk, as he's at the, you know, the beginning stages of this sermon, is he saying that the law is not important? No. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is in no way downplaying the importance of the law. In fact, it, you can hear it in his words when he says, I have not come to abolish the law. You see, the law is good. The law reveals a lot to us. The law reveals the righteousness of God. It reveals God's righteous and holy standard to us, his people. But you know what else the law reveals? The law also reveals our sin. And the law reveals how we are sinners and how we have missed the mark. In Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul said it like this. He said, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the, king, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness, this righteousness, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And so the law reveals a couple things. It reveals God's great standard, but it also reveals how we have sinned and fallen short. We couldn't keep it. We could not obey all these rules. This is not something that we can necessarily hold up on our own. And so Jesus couldn't be more clear as he begins his sermon. He didn't come to abolish the law, but what did he say he came to do? He said, I came to fulfill it. I came to fulfill it. Jesus fulfills the law in his own person and in his own teaching. Jesus is the fulfillment of the story of Israel. Jesus is what everyone had been waiting for up to this point, whether they recognized it and wanted to admit it or not. And Jesus would make deeper sense of the law. Let me use an example of something that was prevalent in the law. It's kind of a sad picture, right? Sorry, didn't mean to offend or hurt anyone today, okay? Uh, but, you know... I'm going to talk a little bit here about the sacrificial system for a second. And the law required sacrifice to be made for sin. It was just a part of the law's regulations. You could read about it in Hebrews chapter 9, but it talks about, you know, how the law required sacrifice for sin. But Jesus fulfills the sacrificial laws entirely because he is the lamb that has taken away the sin of the world. He stepped in there in our place. You see, sacrificial laws were good, but in Jesus, they are fulfilled. They are no longer needed. Are you with me? 
You catch what I'm saying here? Absolutely fulfilled. And so you and I don't have to sacrifice an animal here this morning, here on stage. I'm near grateful for that, right? It'd get kind of gross. It'd be pretty messy up here. Thank goodness we don't have to do that. You know, Jesus is not abolish, abolishing the idea of sacrifice, but he actually, in him, in himself, fulfilled it. And did it in his body on the cross, which was torn apart for the sin of the world, which we remembered today as we took communion together. And so because of what Jesus did, because of his once and for all sacrifice, sacrifice is no longer necessary according to the standards of the law. You see, Jesus has fulfilled the law. Author and professor Scott McKnight says it this way in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, instead of abolishing the law, Jesus says his mission is to fulfill. The term fulfill relates to Old Testament patterns and predictions coming to realization. In summary, to fulfill or complete means history has come to its fulfillment in Jesus himself. That, that is, in his life, death, resurrection, exaltation, and in his teachings, the Torah had come to its goal. The Torah hereby takes on the face of Jesus. The lesson we get in reading the Bible is this. Look to Jesus as its central story. And I was reading a book about this yesterday. There's a new book out called Reunion by Bruxy Cavey. I definitely recommend that you check that out if you like reading um, theology-type books. But he talks about how, you know, this whole idea that the whole story of Israel was all of a sudden fulfilled in Jesus. This is who they've been waiting for. And so even in matters where we don't understand, we look to Jesus. Even in parts where scriptures seem to go seem like they're contradicting a bit. We allow Jesus to be the referee of that, and we're going to even see that a bit as we go forward in the Sermon on the Mount. But because of what Jesus said and declared, we can now look to Jesus and seek to follow him, his ways, his teachings, and in following him, we also follow through him the law, which he has fulfilled. A lot of people ask me, like, you know, so, so what, do, what, what does that mean? Does that mean that I still have to follow the commands of the Old Testament? Or what, what, how does that all work? Well, all that was fulfilled in Jesus. And so we now follow Christ. And in doing so, through him, we follow the law. Are you with me? Jesus declares that by following him, we follow the Torah and the law. And his teaching not only fulfills the law, but he even expounds on it. And he makes it deeper. And he makes it more personal for those who are going to listen. Jesus takes it from just law, but he brings it back into what we call relationship with God. And so that brings us to verse 20. And Jesus says these words, and we're going to spend the rest of the morning on this. Jesus says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And in the original audience, when they heard this verse, it would have been like, whoa, that's a curveball. They'd have been thrown a curveball, essentially. It would have been a very tough verse for them to understand. The, the word righteousness, the Greek word is dikaios, and it means a life that is right on, a good life lived before God, a correct life, right with God and right with other people, loving your neighbor as yourself, and loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the righteousness that Jesus is referring to. But how can a righteousness compete with that of the Pharisees, what the original audience would have thought that day? The Pharisees seem so right on. Their lives seem so perfect. They seem like they had it together. They were right with God. They were the ones doing everything properly. And when Jesus says the words that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven, the first thing the people would have been met with when he made that statement was alarm. Whoa. 
we have to be better than those guys? Those guys have it together. Those guys are doing everything right. Those guys seem to, you know, have this whole thing figured out. And Jesus is coming up to us saying, we have to have it together better than them? Because when you think about it, up until now, the Pharisees were the standard that was set for the people. They were the keepers of the law. In their eyes and in many around them, they were seen as the righteous ones. We can't miss that. Many people did look up to them. That would be like someone approaching a group of kids playing hockey, right, at an arena, and delivering the exciting, happy news that unless your skills go beyond those of Connor McDavid, right, you will surely never have a hockey career, right? Sorry, I've been looking for a way to get that picture in a life lesson, right? That's a picture of Connor in the airport, uh, greeted by some fans, and the awkwardness on his face is just beautiful, right? Had to fit it in there somewhere. But think about that. It's not exactly the kind of words that are going to expire excitement, right? They're not the kind of words that are going to have the kids going, well, anything's possible, right? That's a pretty big damper if someone would say something like that to you. That unless your skills surpass someone of that kind of caliber on the ice, you're not going to have a career. Jesus is saying that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, similar thing is what the people would have thought. But is that what he meant? You see, at the first mention this would have come off as very intimidating. And so Jesus, so either Jesus is getting at one of two things here. Number one, Jesus is either declaring that unless you do enough good deeds or enough good works and become like the Pharisees and keeping up appearances, you're out. That's one possibility of what Jesus could have meant here. Or, here's a, here's a second possibility I'll throw at you. Maybe this isn't so much about quantity but it's about getting the real message of God. It's about quality of righteousness. True righteousness. Maybe this isn't about rules and law, but maybe it's about grace. Maybe it's about the ways of God that need to affect our hearts and not just our actions on the outside. Maybe that's what Jesus is getting out here. You see, who were the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees were a Jewish group who I already said were quite impressive to many people. They sought to follow the law to preserve the Jewish life. They, you know, they worshipped God. They worshipped Yahweh. You know, they, they, they were fighting amidst Greek and Roman opposition and oppression at this time. And out of the Jewish revolt came the Pharisees, and many thought they were right on. They followed the commandments. They followed the prohibitions of the law. Many people thought they were doing right. How could one, how on earth could any of us ever beat these guys? How could our righteousness surpass theirs? For some people, it would have been impossible. But here's the deal. Somewhere along the lines, the Pharisees themselves had lost the plot. They'd missed the point. They began using God's law in a way that God never intended, and it became, it became full of hypocrisy hypocrisy and pride and legalism and bullying, and it became a part of their daily lives. These are things that they are beginning to be known for. Did they follow the law? Well, yeah, kind of, but in a sense, no. Not at all, and we're going to figure that out as Jesus talks here. They tried to keep some of the commands, but really what they did was they missed the point. Remember the family illustration I talked about at the beginning? Did Megan follow her dad's rules? Yes, kind of, right? But no, she only mowed part of the lawn. But she left a whole section that was undone. 
because in her mind, she justified it. You can't really see it anyways. And then she sought to get paid or reimbursed for all that she had done. It was about earning for her. You see, you can follow the law, but you can completely miss the heart or the spirit of the law. And her dad, you know, didn't ask her to mow the lawn that day so that she would earn his love. That wasn't his intent, but that's perhaps how she heard it. You see, you can follow the law and yet miss the whole heart of the law, and that is what was going on with the Pharisees. It was empty rule following. It was empty. It turned into empty legalism that gets us nowhere. And so let's examine today for a few moments what the righteousness of the Pharisees would have looked like. Um, I've titled this little section, Profile of the Pharisee, and uh, Jesus can be our author here. I'll, I'll, I'll quote words that he had to say about them. And so the first one, the first thing we can think about the Pharisees is that they were known by what they said, but not by what they did. They were known for what they said, but not by what they did. In Matthew 23.3, Jesus said, So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. And so the Pharisees were known for giving instruction. They were known for telling people things that they had to do. They were known for putting guilt on people's shoulders, but they didn't necessarily do it themselves. That's what's another thing they were known for. They did things to be seen and appreciated by men. In Matthew 23, we read, everything they do is done for people to see. They make their, oh, I had a tough time with this word this week, phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace, to be called rabbi by others. They were all about public praise, and they made sure that whatever they did, that people were going to see it done, and that people were going to be impressed with them. Another thing they did was that they customized the law to their preferences. Jesus says this to them. He says, thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. And so they would choose the parts of the law that they felt were important. And not only would they choose the parts that they felt were important, but they'd add rules on top of those rules to make sure nobody would get close to breaking them. But they wouldn't lift a finger to help anyone keep them. And finally, here's another thing they did. They did very little to love and to help people. Jesus said they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads, put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. And so despite what people thought about the Pharisees, despite what the crowds on that day might have thought about the Pharisees, Jesus saw what was really happening. Jesus sees into our hearts. He sees the deepest parts that none of us could ever get a picture of. I was thinking about legalism this past week, and um, I came across a global article on the internet about some examples of very legalistic rules right here in our country of Canada. Here, let me give you a couple just for fun here. Um, since 1993, it has been illegal for cyclists to attach sirens to their bicycles in the province of Ontario, right? Uh, you could put bells on your bicycle, you could put um, little, like, you know, little horns maybe, but not sirens, right? And the funny thing is that right here in Manitoba, you actually have the freedom to do that to your bike, all right? And so I encourage you guys, I want to see some bikes out there in full siren this summer, okay? Because it's your freedom, use it, right? Um, here's another one. In Alberta, get this, it is illegal to paint a wooden ladder in Alberta. You can't do it. Um, I don't know if this is ever enforced. I don't know if anyone will ever question you about it, but it's a rule. You can't 
paint a wooden ladder. You have to keep it the way it is. And one more, and this one's interesting because I know I've been guilty of this before. According to the Canada Currency Act of 1985, which is in effect, there are limits to the number of coins that can be used in a transaction. Anyone ever know this before? And so if you're using nickels, if you're going to go to the store and pay in nickels, the most you can use is $5 worth of nickels, right? And then the, t the, the person at the till can actually deny you, right, and not take your money. Uh, for loonies, it's $25. How many of us have ever had that embarrassing moment where you had so much change and you went into a place and you yourself know you might have been close to this, right? But these are examples of legalistic rules right here in Canada, rules that are there, but maybe they don't have much behind them or maybe they don't have a ton of practical use. Sure, they're there, but I've never ever really seen them enforced or I've never ever heard an example from someone of them becoming an issue, Right? I've never been turned away for paying with too many coins, right? People just usually want to take my money. But you see, in essence, Jesus is saying that this example left by the teachers of his day was not what God had in mind for his followers. Hypocritical legalism wasn't enough. External obedience, outward obedience, wasn't enough at the expense of God changing us inwardly, of God affecting our hearts at the expense of allowing him to form our hearts into the kind of people who exhibit the fruit of the kingdom because of an inward change that's taken place. I've heard it said, tend to the tree, and the fruit will just take care of itself. We don't produce fruit on our own. You see, our best efforts will be in vain and will fail. You see, a fruit tree doesn't wake up one morning and just decide, I'm going to try really hard today to produce fruit, right? And just make it happen. But it happens through a series of conditions and a series of time and something that happens by tending to the tree. And fruit just naturally appears. It doesn't become legalism. It doesn't become earning. It doesn't become striving. But it starts by, for us, it starts by allowing Jesus to change our deepest, most inward parts if we want to see fruit come from our lives. And so Jesus is about to go on a series of teachings that take us deeper than simply outward acts here in the Sermon on the Mount. And he insists that the inward state is more important. And he makes these statements, and we heard one last week as Pastor Jordan talked about anger. He makes this, these statements, you've heard it said, do not murder. That's what we talked about last week. But then he'll follow it up, but I tell you. Don't harbor anger against a brother or a sister. Don't even allow yourself to get to that place inwardly where that outward action could even become a possibility. You see, you've heard it said, talks about the outward action. But Jesus says, but I tell you, and he's about to say this a bunch of times coming up. He's going to say, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, don't even lust for someone else in your heart. And he deepens these things. And he takes them from legalism, and he takes them just from keeping rules outwardly to develop us into the kinds of people who just love and long to be a part of his work here on the earth. You've heard it said, but I tell you are going to be words that we hear him say as we go forward. You see, Jesus didn't just come to change our behavior, but he really came to change our hearts. And he came to initiate a way of life among his people that would really be able to become life-transforming and that would transform this world around us. It wasn't about a quantity of righteousness. It wasn't about, you know, you keep 250 commandments, I keep 249. It had nothing to do with it as much as it was about quality. Righteousness rooted in the person of Jesus Christ, 
as we allow him to transform us from the inside out. By deepening the commandments, you've heard it said, but I tell you, by saying he fulfilled the law, Jesus was laying down some words that would surely offend people in the crowd if the religious teachers were there that day. Those kind of things would have came off as very offensive. It would have angered people. They would have thought, who is this carpenter, you know, correcting the Old Testament? Who is this carpenter who thinks he has the authority to say, you've heard it said like this, and he quotes the Old Testament, but then he adds to it, but now I tell you, and he adds on to it, well, this carpenter, this person was the one who fulfilled the Old Testament. And we as his followers follow him. You see, perhaps this is why C.S. Lewis has often said in his writings, often said in his works, hopefully we have some Lewis fans here today, but this is probably why C.S. Lewis has often said that either Jesus was who he claimed to be or he was a lunatic. He has not left any other option open to us. Either we believe his claims that he was God, that he was the Son of God, or he wasn't. And if he claimed that, well, then he is who he is. But if he wasn't, well, then we would write him off as some guy who's starting some far-out thing out there, right? By the claims he made, by his teaching of Scripture, making it about the heart and the inward life, and simply not the outside, he would have stepped on many, many toes. And he would have offended many people, as he did often throughout his ministry. You see, by these verses, by these few verses that we read this morning, Jesus is going to set up what's going to be explored in the verses ahead as he talked about murder, as we covered last week. As he talks about lust, as he talks about divorce, as he talks about oaths, as he talks about judging other people, he was going to be giving us some teaching that far exceeded the Pharisees' legalistic teachings. And at the end of the day, the Pharisees, when you think about it, as I use the family illustration this morning, they were much like Megan, who I described earlier in the life lesson doing just enough of the right thing, but totally missing the point, totally missing the heart behind the law. And Jimmy, her brother, wasn't much better. You see, the, the Jews of Jesus' day had all these oppressive rules, and so, you know, they lift the bar so high that none of us could actually achieve this standard. And so if we live our lives like Jimmy did, we accept God's grace in our lives, and we think to ourselves, well, I'm going to live how I want, because I don't want to take any part of that legalism, Right? I might as well not even try. You see, God's going to love us anyways, regardless of what we do. And we just say grace, 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 right? Or we say mercy, mercy, mercy. And what's really interesting when you think about it is that in every element of bad teaching, there's always at least some truth to it. There's nothing wrong with obedience in Megan's case. And there's nothing wrong with grace in Jimmy's case. But it's the way they're going about it. It's the way they're putting it into practice. You see... For Jimmy, it's yes, God is graceful, and yes, God loves us. For Megan, it's yes, we should obey. Yes, there's nothing wrong with working hard. But Jimmy and Megan represent two extremes in Christianity, and both are wrong. Megan believes we have to earn God's love. Jimmy believes that we have God's love, and so we could just do whatever we want and live as we please. But both of these extremes fail and miss the point completely because there is a way of being right with God and right with others that is so much deeper than all of that. I said there were three teenage children when I started the life lesson today in that family. Well, let me introduce you to the youngest child. The youngest daughter. Let's call her Grace today. 
Mr. Smith walked into his kitchen and saw his youngest daughter, Grace, sitting there on a hot summer day. And he said to her, Gracie, would you mind mowing the lawn for me today? Can you please mow the lawn? And Grace just got up, right? And she jumped at the chance, remembering all the times that her parents had sacrificed for her and poured their life into her life and just the way they'd cared for her, what they'd done for her, right? She just jumped up. She just leapt at it. And she thought, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. And she, you know, she just wasn't going to make the lawn look beautiful to her, to her, for her parents for her gain. And so she went out of her way, not just to mow the par parts that were easy, not just to mow the parts that people can see, but she mowed the entire lawn that day. Even the places that were tough to get to or where no one would ever see them. And she trimmed the hedges and she worked in the garden and she made it beautiful. And it was her joy. She was actually happy about it. You see, her good deeds surpassed her siblings. Her work was beautiful, and she enjoyed every second of that work in the hot sun. She was filled with joy, knowing that her dad would be proud of her no matter what. And that she was already a smith, and she didn't ever have to do anything to prove that. She didn't have to accomplish anything to become a smith. She was already a smith. She was part of the family. But she wanted what her dad wanted, and she began to love the things that her mom and dad loved as well. And so she would mow the lawn, knowing how they liked it to be mowed. And she was thrilled to be a smith. And she came inside at the end of the day. She didn't even mention the hedges or the garden at all. She wanted it to be a surprise, and she couldn't wait to see the smile and delight on her parents' face as they examined all that she had done, or as they went outside and took a look. You see, what I have just described for you in the third child is really a Christian life. You see, Grace does beautiful things from what? She does them from an overflow of love. She does them from a heart that has been touched and changed by the love of God that she's experienced and that she herself has known. It's the righteousness, friends, that surpasses that of the Pharisees. And it's not just about outward acts and outward praise and, you know, people seeing what you're doing, but it comes from an inward condition, from a heart that's been changed by her father's love. You know, she witnessed the sacrifice of her parents, their sacrificial love for her, and this lo love flowed from them to her. And so Gracie didn't mow the lawn to become a child of her father. And in the same way, we don't do things to become a child of God. You know, our good deeds could never do that. We could never earn salvation. We could never earn his love. And it's true for us, isn't it? Our good deeds need to be an overflow of the, gross, of the grace sorry, that was already poured into our lives, into our hearts. And she received love from her parents, and she wanted to love him back. It was that simple. And in a lot of ways, Jesus invites us to receive his love. That's why I think it's so important that everyone recognize who they are in Christ. That you are a child. You're a part of the family. And he loves you. You know, her deeds were really good, and she loved what she did. And it's not like someone was just doing a job to get paid. It wasn't like that for her. But she loved what she did because her heart was changed. And she gets to love her dad. It's not that she had to do it. It's that she gets to do it. And she gets to like what her dad likes. And she gets to be with him. You see, Jesus, who fulfilled the law for us, is bringing to fulfillment what was prophesied in the book of Ezekiel. 
In Ezekiel 36, the prophet wrote this. He said, For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to follow my laws, to keep my laws. You see, there's, there's this connection between law and spirit that God would give us his Holy Spirit to live in us and that somehow this would help us in following the law. This isn't about striving, friends, but God wants to be our helper. And this verse talks about how these spirit-filled people would do good things that the Pharisees could never dream of doing, being made right before God by grace alone. And it's the only way that we're ever going to live as good people. You see, good deeds are never done to earn salvation, but they're an overflow from the salvation that you've already received. And Jesus' illustration of the way the Pharisees had seen righteousness was just like this. It was an illustration of a dirty cup. And he says this in Matthew 23 and verses 25 to 27. Um, if you could throw it up on the screen. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You were like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. You clean the outside, but inside are full of all sorts of unrighteous things. First clean the inside, Jesus says, and then the outside will be clean. You see, our lives are like a dirty cup. You know, we try sometimes to keep the outside of our lives clean, and we can fall into this habit. You know, we do good things to look intelligent and clean. We hide sins. We stuff them deep down inside that cup so that nobody, hopefully the outside of the cup still looks white, and they don't catch a whole lot that's going on out there. You know, there'll probably be a little bit sometimes out there just because we're sinful people. But we keep the outside clean, and yet sometimes all this striving and all this working just leaves us feeling empty. And so we can develop this habit of trying to work for and earn God's love. But God says this. He says, blind Pharisee, keep the inside of the cup clean. And if you do that, the outside of the cup's going to result clean as well. Jesus said it like this at one point. He said, from the overflow of your heart, your mouth speaks. It's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, but it's what comes out, right? And sometimes what comes out can be all sorts of the things that are brewing on the inside. There's a movie from the 90s. Anyone ever seen this movie? It's called Liar, Liar, right? Starred Jim Carrey back when he made good movies. Oh, sorry if you're a fan, okay? Sorry if you're a fan. But he had a good run, right? Jim had a good run, and we have to, you know, respect that today. But this was a movie from the 90s. I'm not sure I could even recommend you watch it. I forgot what it was all about, kind of, right? So don't, don't, you know, go home and rent it and then send me an email later on, okay? Not just standing back from that, okay? But in this movie, he played the character Fletcher. And Fletcher was a lawyer and a pathological liar whose son wished that his father for one day would be able to tell the truth just for one whole day. And so magically, what ends up happening in this movie, to give this movie some substance, is for 24 hours, it becomes impossible for Fletcher, Jim Carrey, to lie about anything. And so what happens is suddenly his heart's exposed, as in completely exposed, right? 
And his mouth, you know, it becomes like an unfiltered mirror of, of all those things that have been stirring around in his heart all along. And the movie gets nasty, and it gets rude, and it gets awkward as ever because all those things on the inside, all those dark things that he thought he could hide from everybody, all of a sudden for 24 hours were coming out in full truth, right? And it was all coming out of his mouth. And suddenly his biggest asset, which was his ability to lie, became his biggest liability because he could no longer cover up anything, but he was really exposed. Let's ask ourselves a question here. If it suddenly became impossible for us to cover up all the junk we normally hide on the inside from the rest of humanity, do you think we would all get real motivated to deal with the source of what ails us? You think maybe we'd get a little bit more motivated about checking the state of our hearts if people were able to see what was happening there. If all the filters came off, no doubt, we would no doubt be a little more motivated and anxious to clean up our heart's condition, wouldn't we? And Jesus in his teaching is taking us down a path where it's not just about the outside of the dish, but it's very much about what's happening on the inside. Proverbs 4.23 skipping ahead for the keynote guys, reads it like this. It says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Everything you do. And so the heart matters. The heart matters to Jesus. The heart matters in his teaching. And so here's a question. What does the inside of our cup look like today? What does the inside of your cup look like today? You see, if the inside is dirty, we can try to act like Megan and Jimmy. We could try to earn God's love, or we can become flippant about how we live, taking advantage of his grace. But if the inside is clean, which is really all a gift of grace, because God alone has to do that, he is our righteousness, then we live like Gracie, and we live filled with the love of God, eager to do good deeds, not to earn anything, but simply as an act of worship unto him and what he's done for us. You see, Jesus came that we would discover a righteousness that came from within with a desire to please God and not just as a means to get off the hook, not just as a means not to get in trouble. And I think that that's tough for us sometimes because think about it this way. As kids, in a lot of ways, we were taught to behave in order to avoid pain, right? We were taught to behave in order to avoid pain. What do I mean by that? Well, um, I think sometimes perhaps the major reason we never really stopped to monitor our hearts is because sometimes it was never encouraged. We were taught to behave. And if we behaved properly, then good things happened, regardless of what was going on in our hearts. But if we misbehaved, not so good things happened, right? And that got my attention early as a kid. And so I modified my behavior just to avoid pain, and I've been doing it probably a little bit ever since. And I wonder if some of us would admit we've done that as well. You know, it's one thing to punish, but what's always worse, what was always worse to me sometimes when I got in trouble, and this didn't happen all the time, but it happened every now and then, was that question my parents would ask me. And they would say to me, Jordan, do you understand why what you did was wrong? That was always tougher than just modified, because that explored my heart. That caused me to think about things. That caused me to look deeper. And Jesus takes us deeper. You've heard it said external, but I tell you, we're taking this deeper. We're taking this inward. 
And so let me ask a couple questions. Worship team, you could um, come up. Let me ask a couple questions, though. Where does my motivation to do good come from? Ask yourself that. You see, the, ma- the answer to that question massively impacts how you view God and how you live for him. Are we doing it to earn love, or are we content to just think, you know, I'm hopeless, I can't do it, God forgives me anyway, so it's all good? Or how about suggesting a third way tonight? By his spirit and by grace alone, will we pray to him for him to cleanse us from the inside out so that we could walk in freedom? Not in freedom to earn his love, but freedom to walk in joy and grace, loving him, loving people because of the amazing truth that he has in fact loved each one of us today without condition. You know, while I've had lots of moments of Jimmy and abusing grace, I see that my motivation sometimes comes as Megan. And so if my inside of my heart is, is dry and dirty, I try to clean the outside with joy and diligence so that no one will know, right? I'm a pastor after all. I have to do this. I'm a Christian after all. We, we do this kind of stuff. And it's easy for us sometimes to default into Megan mode, but that only goes so far and that only lasts so long before we feel even more deflated, doesn't it? As a Christian, we are all in a position of grace. We all have the same last name. And if you don't have a relationship with God, you're invited into the family without doing anything but accepting his grace. We are sons and daughters. No matter what we do, we're children of God, and we can live as children of God. It's only by the Holy Spirit coming into our lives and our hearts and cleansing and renewing us that we obey. And so let me ask a couple of questions. Can I have everyone stand? Maybe you feel like Megan today, defaulting into empty legalism, trying so hard to look impressive, trying so hard to do things in order to accept God's love. Maybe you just need God to wash his love over you this morning. Or maybe you feel like Jimmy, kind of like this, you know, whatever, I live how I want, and you've recognized this morning, you know, maybe I do take advantage of grace sometimes, of God's grace. Or maybe you want to pursue the way of the youngest child, Grace, Gracie, and how she related to her parents, so overwhelmed by love that it caused her to pursue them and what they loved. You see, at the end of the day, Jesus is our righteousness, and he is all we need. But as we seek to live for and please him, may it go beyond legalism. May it go beyond the cheapening of grace, and may it be from hearts that have been touched by his love. That's where we want to be. And so today, I'm going to have the worship team just close us here in a song, and I'm going to come up and pray and dismiss with a blessing. But today, as we respond in song, would you take a moment as you sing just to maybe even pray? And maybe utter the question, Lord, where am I at? Lord, where's my heart at? Show me the cup of my life. How am I trying to relate to you? And maybe this morning you'll find yourself praying that God would do something new in you and in your heart. I know that's how I'll be praying. Lord, I pray for each one here today, Lord, that we would walk out of here encouraged, knowing how much you love us. May we experience your grace. May it empower us, Lord God, to serve you, not to earn anything, but because we are loved, because we are part of your family. Keep us from legalism, Lord. Keep us from the opposite of where it becomes licentiousness. And just keep us, Lord God, in your arms of love today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In ancient times, the one who blessed did so by extending hands. And those who want to receive a blessing did likewise. And so if you'd like to receive a blessing today, please extend your hands. And here it is. May the love of God fill you. 
May his grace transform you. And may the Holy Spirit empower you this week. Above all else, guard your hearts for everything you do flows from it. Amen. Amen. God bless. Have a great week. Thank you for coming. We'll see you next week.